Hello, friends. Welcome to the weekly episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Julie Evans. A quick reminder for those that enjoy this podcast, please take 30 seconds and leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the YouTube channel. This helps the show get discovered and helps me continue to bring on amazing guests. Also, there are now timestamps in the show notes, so feel free to jump around, although I recommend listening to the episode in its entirety. Dr. Evans is a graduate of Brown University and earned her doctorate in educational leadership from the University of California, San Diego, and California State University, San Marcos. She is a frequent facilitator, speaker, and writer on new learning models within education, most notably around digital learning and its respective future. Dr. Evans serves as Chief Executive Officer of Project Tomorrow and is founder of the heralded Speak Up Research Project, which annually collects and reports on the authentic views of K-12 students, parents, and educators on key educational issues. After talking with Dr. Evans, I am both concerned and enthusiastic about the future landscape for the developing generations. I hope that more of us can implement Dr. Evans' ideas, see them realized on a policy level, and witness a brighter future for the children of this country. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, Dr. Julie Evans. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I'm very excited to talk to you as education and learning are something that I hold very dear to my heart. And I think that it is a, a wonderful topic that should continually be explored for the rest of everybody's life. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I think this will be a fun conversation. Yeah. So I uh, I went back in the catalogs of YouTube and I watched a an interview you did with, I believe it was KOCE TV in 1999, which is right about the time that you joined Project Tomorrow. And you had highlighted a, a couple areas that seemed to be of most importance, which were mathematics and science and how those were being focused on within the world of education. Now, 14 plus years later, can you speak a little bit to the changing landscape of what is and is not most important within the academic setting for K through 12? Yeah, I think a lot of things have changed, obviously, over the last couple of years. Uh, not just because of the pandemic, not just because of what happened in terms of the disruptions to traditional education, but that the, the whole world has changed in that yes. time frame uh, in so many different ways. And, you know, if I think back, it's so funny, Abe, that you bring that up. I think back to at that time, we were all very focused in on making sure that students had really strong math and science skills that we felt that those were the types of skills that would lead kids into being successful in the future, being economically self-sufficient, uh, being able to make good contributions in the world. And I don't think that has diminished, but I think that our perspective has changed a little bit. I think that what we're talking about more today is making sure that students have the right skills to be successful, be it in the workplace, in the military, in college, even in their family life, as a citizen, any of these types of things. And so the shift has now been to more types of skills like critical thinking, problem solving, communication skills, whether that's writing or verbal skills, collaboration and teamwork skills, understanding how to authenticate 
what they're reading online and understand what's accurate and what may be biased. Those are the types of skills that we're now talking about as being absolutely essential for kids to develop to be successful in the future, whatever path they pursue. And so our schools have shifted a little bit. That's not to say that they're not still talking about developing good literate uh, readers and writers and understanding math and understanding science. But the focus is now on making sure that through those academic content areas, we're also helping students develop these type of skills, whether you want to call them workplace skills or life skills or success skills. Yeah, I, I think back to my time as if, if I can reflect on high school and, and middle school for a bit, the I was always an athlete, I was a student athlete. And so my, my best form of expression as a child was through physical activity. I think that's where I came alive. It's where I really shaped my character when I was younger. And a lot of my confidence as a kid came out of that. School I recognized as this very important thing that allowed me to do that. If I didn't perform well in school, if I didn't keep my grades up, there was a trade-off, right? My parents wanted me to do well there so that I could then go and enjoy these areas. Now, I happen to have a knack for literature, writing, more of the creative subjects. And math was something that I could work really, really hard at and do okay. But if it was anything shy of a 10 out of 10 effort, I struggled. Science, because it's a blend of your understanding of mathematics in a very specific set combined with chemistry and everything else that's going on there, made that another subject where it was tough, but I could put in a lot of work and get it done. When I think about that, I think about how many kids maybe have a superpower, right? And their superpower doesn't lie within math or science. And there wasn't really a way to express that. Sure, you had extracurriculars, you had theater and other ways that you could express creative ideas or do things, but I feel like in a way it's almost a disservice because you're not allowing that child to come alive the most that they can, which is you go out into the workplace and look at all the skills that we rely on now, the interpersonal skills, the intangibles, the, you know, there's some people that might not even rely on mathematics or science at all in their career and they're very successful. So how do you take these ideas and start to implement them into a classroom setting. And, and what responsibility is on this school system uh, from maybe more of like a political view? And then what, what responsibility lies on the teacher in the classroom? So there's a couple different things to think about. You know, in a, in a bygone era in the past, we thought about the content areas as being most important. So uh, did you know how to multiply fractions? Right. right. Did you know yes. the state capitals? Right. <laughs> Could you understand how to uh, break down a sentence and identify what was a verb and what was a noun? And those things were predominantly what was taught in school. You know, the, the focus has changed. And this is this is the point that that I think is really important for us to all talk about. Because we now see those things as ways for students to develop their own superpowers and recognize their own superpowers. But most importantly, we're now recognizing that every student is different. 
so that there isn't the one size fits all. Everyone needs to know this or everybody needs to know this, but rather a way to think about how do we personalize instruction to make sure that we're giving kids the opportunities to discover what their superpowers are, discover what their passions are, discover what makes them tick as a human being, and give them opportunities to be successful with that. Now that's really, um, that's really hard to do in our traditional school environments. Because think about it, I mean, the, the structures that are in school today, a uh, long time ago when I went to school, when you went to school, when kids that live next door to me are going to school now, are all basically the same. You go to a place, there's a start time and a stop time, there's a teacher in the classroom, kids learn how to line up and follow the rules of school, and it's really hard to break out of that sort of status quo to say, well, we've got this child who loves literature. So how do we emphasize more of that and still give them the opportunity to become proficient in the other subjects? How do we do that if we have 30 kids in a class and they all have different passions and different motivations. That's the big challenge that our schools face today. How do we reconcile the desire to personalize learning, individualize learning, help kids find their passions and their superpowers with the structure of school that still is meant to be um, more of a one size fits all? Does that make sense? Yeah, how do you start to chisel away at that? There's a, you know, there's some really interesting things and I have the wonderful opportunity to visit with schools all the time, to go into classrooms all the time, talk to educators, talk to teachers, principals. I was visiting New York City the week before Thanksgiving and got an opportunity to visit several schools there. You know, it, it comes into a couple different things. The most important thing is that we have to think about what is the role of the teacher today as being different than what the role the teacher was in the past. Right. And technology has changed that. So the role of the teacher in the past was the expert, right? <clears throat> so the teacher knew everything about science. Right. The teacher knew everything. About Everything's math. so funny in hindsight, right? I know. When you so look funny. back, you're like, they were 30 years um, old. Right. And How they did you know everything, yeah. right? But the idea was that the student was an empty vessel, is the metaphor many people use, and the teacher was filling that vessel. Right. Okay? So that's not the world today. You know, knowledge is all around us. Kids are seeking out knowledge on their own. They're finding ways to develop their own passion outside of school so that school is not the repository of all knowledge. It's not the only place you go to learn. It's not the center actually of the universe in the same way it was before. So consequently, the role the teacher needs to change. So, so many people are talking about rather than the teacher being, this is another phrase that, that's used a lot, rather than the teacher being the sage on the stage, the teacher needs to take on a role of a facilitator of learning where the student is actually more in the driver's seat driving their own educational destiny and that the teacher is the support, the coach, the mentor, the yeah. facilitator of all of these different learning processes. If we start to think about that, 
then the idea of facilitating what might be one child's passion versus another child's passion comes into to context a little bit easier because the role of the teacher is different. Now that's very hard. That's very, very hard, particularly for our existing teachers to think about that. So how do I change as a teacher? How do I change what I always thought was my role, my identity, my responsibility to be different? And so that's some of the conflicts that we're seeing in schools today, this changing role of the teacher. It's interesting when, when I think back to, again, like K through 12, right? You don't remember the teacher that was the smartest teacher, usually. You remember the teacher that had an impact on you. And usually that teacher is the one that gave you the most freedom to be who you were. So they either, the facilitator word's well used because they really do, they facilitate the learning journey for you or they, or encourage you to move in different directions where your curiosity is. But unfortunately that was rare, right? How many of those teachers do you think back and go, wow, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so really helped me discover more about myself more more of the time you remember like one and then you remember the ones that were such a pain in the butt they right. gave you a hard time that gave you detention or, or just things that have nothing to do with the cognitive development of a an adolescent and when i when i think about that though i already see a challenge right which is incentives are misaligned with quality facilitators because if you're a if you're a high value <laughs> what we'll call you like a high value asset of a citizen and you have the ability to impact and uplift people how do you get that person to want to become an educator in a industry that's wildly underpaid right so what is like i feel like that it's the the chicken before the egg or the, the carrot before the horse, like how do you change the incentive system within the educational landscape to bring, to bring top talent in and really make them feel at home so that they can fully facilitate the learning experience for these children without feeling like they're missing out on career advancement, on savings, on retirement, stuff like that. How do you do that? And you're absolutely right. There is such a misalignment in terms of thinking about how to motivate people into the teaching profession. And uh, my organization, Project Tomorrow, has done a lot of work around understanding both what the conundrum is and then also thinking about what are potential solutions. And one of the things that we have always seen is that where teachers can feel that they have an impact, where they have changed a child's life, where they have brought something out of that child, helped them reveal something about themselves, help them discover something about themselves, that that motivation, that ability to be that type of an influence and impact on students is what teachers talk about all the time as the greatest part of their job and the part that compensates for so many other things. And so what we find is that in places where, whether it is principals or the school district or the school board or the community, revere teachers as having a real impact and recognize and respect their ability 
to be um, more autonomous, shall we say, in the classroom, teachers feel better about the job. Where teachers feel that, well, it's Tuesday and I better be on page 25 of my pacing guide because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble with my principal or with the school district. Those teachers are less than successful and less than satisfied. So it's about understanding and respecting the role of the teacher, this new facilitator role, and giving teachers some autonomy, some freedom to direct the process. Now that runs in conflict with so many things that we know about traditional education, which again goes back to that old model of one size fits all. So every teacher needs to do the same thing. So, I mean, what I often find is that we're teach what teachers really want to talk about when they talk about how can, how can we improve my job? How can I feel more satisfied in my job? They, of course, mention the financial rewards, but quite often side by side is more the working conditions. Do they feel that they are respected? Do they feel that they can make a change in a child's life? and that they won't get in trouble for doing something that is outside of the norm or outside of what their standards are. Does that make sense, Abe? Yeah, yeah. I I guess to, to push back in some sense, I struggle with accepting and and I don't <laughs> I don't do this for a living and I, I'm nowhere near vetted as you are having spent a, a career doing this. So I I take what you're saying with truth. But I wonder in those situations, what better way to show respect for the profession than to compensate them properly, right? And is this just an eternal battle that we're all set to fight where each year on the ballots, it's going to be, let's put more money towards school. And people say, no, let's put more money towards this. Let's decrease taxes, but we need taxes so that we can better pay schooling. And then running parallel to this discussion is the emergence and the proficiency of technology to inform and teach people well. And then the emergence of online schooling options and online universities and all these things that as they grow and as they get more, more users and more proof that they work, will that make that, that ability to pay teachers even harder? Because now you're up against a, a populace who's not willing to, you know, place more money in that area, one, and then two, cheaper emerging opportunities for technological learning are also developing. So how, like, how does this discussion move forward where teachers are being compensated and it's not a runaway train with, with technology? So you brought up so many interesting. It's <laughs> a loaded question. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. So let's unpack. We, yeah, we can this. take the time. We can take yeah, time. Let's unpack some of this. You know, the, the, the thing about compensation for teachers is so, so challenging. And I will often say to folks, I think one of the problems is that everybody thinks they're an expert in education. So we all went to school. And so everybody thinks they know what school either is or should be. Um, the other part of it is everybody knows teachers, 
right? So you have a sister who's a teacher, a mother was a teacher, my next door neighbor is a teacher, my niece is becoming a teacher. You know, everybody has a familiarity. And I think that that familiarity then um, sort of demystifies the process. And people think that they have a greater familiarity with what the teaching world is like than the science of teaching. The science of teaching is very complicated. Teaching children to read is very, very complicated. I often wonder why we don't call teachers scientists because they are, it's about the science of learning and yet we devalue it. I think that during, um, during the pandemic, if we go back to the couple years ago, right? So during the pandemic, when schools had to shut down and kids were forced to be at home and the learning was facilitated online, one of the big complaints that came up all the time was we need to get kids back in school because we need parents to get back to work. So that there was this predominant goal of the custodial function of school that provided childcare while parents were at work, whether that was they were working from home or they were going into an office or going into some type of a workplace. And that became such an overriding thing. Now, subsequently, we have definitely talked about it's better for kids, for many kids to be in school, that the learning was better facilitated that way. But the initial thing really, it broke my heart because it was devaluing the role of the teacher in terms of thinking about it more as a babysitter or right. childcare role than the scientist role that I'm talking about. I don't think this is, you know, big statement, right? I don't think we'll be able to solve the compensation situation with teachers until we change our collective mindset to value that they are scientists in the study of learning and implementing learning effectively. If we still think about them as, oh, well, you know, the, the kids are there, they're doing their own work, how hard could it be? You know, then we, we devalue the profession and you can't get people to um, either approve a bond measure or approve paying teachers more if they don't value the work. And right. so it's an effort really to increase the valuation that people have. I can remember a couple of years ago, a, I was doing some advocacy work around education. And I had a member of, at that point, the California Assembly, mm -hmm. who said to our group, and we were advocate, advocates in Sacramento for education funding, that his constituents would rather pay for more prisons than to pay teachers more. So if, you're, if your mindset is that it would be better to pay, to put funding to more prisons than to educate a future generation, then we've got, we have a whole screwed up mentality that needs to be fixed. So that's, I mean, that's where I think there's um, some ongoing challenges. Now, many folks are trying to change that. They're trying to, um, bring some of this uh, scientist mentality to education. I know that many schools of education, colleges that are preparing teachers are doing some good work in that area as well. But I think that's what the stumbling block is. Until we can get the, 
that the mindset change. It's hard to see the general public who feels such a deep familiarity and feels that they know the job to be able to realize that it's harder than they think and it's more scientific than they think. Well, it's interesting hearing kind of from that bigger picture perspective and, and having had clients with children when the, the pandemic happened and just seeing this trade-off, it really was like a daycare trade-off, unfortunately. But if you think to changing this role of the student-teacher relationship, right? And a lot of this stems from our reflection of being in school, right? And there, there's a lot of people that are very successful now that didn't do well in school. There's a lot of people that drop out and then they are successful. So we've started to view success and school as potentially two separate tracks because you can just go through the system and then make all your decisions later because the system's not enriching you to pursue what your superpowers are. So you're a parent, pandemic happens, all of a sudden your child's at home. The only thing that you can think of is that you are losing this time that you had to work on projects, be in meetings, whatever it may be. Instead of the concern being that now the value or style of your child's learning has changed. But if we could shift, which it sounds like is what your work is exactly, shift the way the learning happens, it's going to change the outcomes of of how people are when they get through school, instead of just checking a box. Did you graduate high school? Did you not graduate high school? It's, did you become the most that you could become in high school? What role did the school system play in you developing your skills and you developing your personality and understanding that track? And I, I think maybe college does a slightly improved version of this because you have a little more autonomy as a student. And in some cases, the, the professors have chosen to do this as a, a life career and the compensation can be decent in, in various fields. But even then you get out of college, you don't know what you're doing unless you're really specialized or you're immediately going to graduate school. I mean, in all my years of schooling and, and schooling well, you know, from a on paper standpoint, everything that I do has nothing to do with anything that I did. And if I could have gone back and found something in the communications world or, or that really enriched all the things that I ended up finding on my own and pursuing on my own, I would have loved it. I didn't know where to look because the design of, of the school system isn't such that it truly helps the individual find that out. And because of that, to, to kind of what I started on here, my perception of academic, academia and going to college and having been through high school is kind of like, eh, right? Which is a bad reaction to have. It shouldn't be that way. I should be enthralled by it and really motivated to, you know, encourage other people to go through it and, and really discover. But because my personal experience was such that I ended up doing stuff that had nothing to do with it, I could see how if I had children, it would be very easy to fall on that boat of, I'm just losing out on daycare time now. So this changing that experience for the individual, it, it, maybe it's a longer timetable though, because you have to have people move through. Is that a, is that a concern it, that 
the time frame here because you're investing and talking about investing in future generations, which is incredibly important. But what's the churn on something like this? So the types of things that keep me up at night <laughs> yes. is that um, the pace of change in education, whether it's bringing some innovative new tool in, thinking differently about the role of the teacher, thinking about what type of courses should be offered in school to uh, attract kids, to engage kids in learning, helping kids develop their superpower. All that stuff drives me absolutely crazy because the pace of the, all that change in education is too slow. And in the meantime, the kids aren't sitting there. So the ninth graders aren't sitting there going, okay, Adults, figure out how to make school better for me, and I'll just stay here in ninth grade <laughs> until right. you figure it out. They're moving on. And we're each year that goes by that we don't solve some of these conundrums, we're impacting the lives of, of students. Let me give you and your listeners a statistic that is absolutely the thing that keeps me up at night. So our, my organization, Project Tomorrow, does a large-scale research project every year called the Speak Up Research Project, where we poll K-12 students, teachers, parents, and administrators each year about their school learning experience, the use of technology, what their aspirations are, what they value, what they wish school was like. For the last four years, preceding the pandemic, through the pandemic, and current, only 50% of our middle school and high school students say they're engaged in what they're learning in school most of the time. Only 50%. That's hard. 50% say they are not engaged in what they are learning in school most of the time. So we've got two groups. We have the kids that are intrinsically motivated to do well, right? The school model, that traditional school model is working for them. And then we have 50% that it is not working for. And where many people said, oh, that was the result of remote learning. It wasn't because our data precedes this and the number has been totally consistent. When we disaggregate this data and we look at kids in suburban communities, urban communities, rural communities, there's no difference. We look at kids that are living in poverty, no difference. Kids that have a lot of technology in school or in home and kids that don't have any, there's no difference. We've got a fundamental problem with the fact that our school model is doing a great job of addressing the needs of some kids, but not all kids. And so we have to, have to think differently about what needs to happen to make sure that our students are engaged in learning, not so much to say, hey, do you know all the state capitals? That's not what I'm talking about, but that about the experience to help them develop what their superpower is, develop what their passion is, to be able to engage them in learning that is contextually rich for them, where they have the opportunity to develop self-efficacy as a learner, where they feel successful with the learning process. That's a crisis that we have. It's what I talk about every day because that's what wakes me up every night. We have to address that and the pace of change in our schools is just too slow to be able to um, 
address the needs of where the kids are today. I mean, I, I think of, I think statistics like this are they're really disheartening because you see, I mean, okay, you had a career in management prior to moving into education nonprofit work. So if you had 50% of your workforce that's underperforming, like drastically underperforming, there is no management team in the world that's going to sit by idly and just hemorrhage cash while 50% of their workforce underperforms. Not that we need to look at children as a workforce that must be or not be performing, but just to view the statistic, if 50% of people going through this system are unhappy, dissatisfied, or disengaged, they're not going to become happier, more satisfied, and more engaged when you come out on the other side of it. So it should be top of the pecking order to adjust this kind of thing. And, and that's not even to mention that and this is more of a thought, it's not a, a statistic, but I think we have a, a, a desire to learn, right? If you watch children from a cognitive standpoint when they're really, really little to, you know, through adolescence and later, it's our nature. You want to figure things out. It, the blocks don't fit. The kid just, before they talk, they want to figure out how the blocks fit. This This continues to work as we grow and maybe it's that the school just isn't providing the learning elements to enrich that student. So they're going to find it somewhere. And now what the, another challenge is, is that information is available everywhere. Information, bias, disinformation, facts, science, like the whole gamut is at our fingertips. So if you're a, a child, a teenager, and you're not fulfilled and challenged in school, that doesn't mean that you don't want to learn. It just means that you're going to be motivated to go learn somewhere else. And now it's in, not that it has to be regulated and controlled, but it's in a freestanding environment where there's no parameters for quality. There's no parameters for, like what you said, that these are scientists, that they are experts in teaching. They're experts in communicating information. And when you just go find it by yourself, there's no filter there. So how do you, I, I would imagine that that's going to be an additional challenge that grows at a rate. Like you said, the education system moves very slowly. Technology moves very fast. A parent's ability to parent their children around technology moves slow. A child's ability to access technology is less and less restricted as you go forward. So Maybe you can speak a little bit on that angle of it, the challenge that technology is presenting in this, that it does present itself as a learning opportunity, whether or not the school system is utilizing it. And you're right. Uh, students want to learn. I mean, human beings want to learn. That's Daniel Pink's whole theory on yes. curiosity <laughs> and motivation, right? Uh, I love when you see uh, the little kindergartners and first graders so excited about learning something new. It, it's like yep. amazing when they discover something. And too often what I will hear from high school students is, eh, you know, high school is just a place I have to get through to get to someplace better. You well, know, so yeah, what, what a horrible What, what has happened in that, yeah. in that process? As you know, Abe, I recently published a book called Free Agent Learner, yep. 
which is really based on this idea that while students have access to technology outside of school, most notably their smartphone primarily, right? They're using it as a learning tool. So they are self-directing their own learning outside of school around areas of passion, curiosity, getting prepared for the workforce, learning skills, looking up answers to questions that they have. And yeah, you're right. You know, it the technology has afforded more students the opportunity to be what I call free agent learners, where they're not tethered to school for learning. They are driving their own educational destiny. But it also presents new challenges because with all of that information out there, how are any of us getting to the point where we can discern what's accurate, what's biased, what might have uh, falsehoods associated with it, let alone for a young 14 or 15 year old to be able to do that on their own. So I quite often will tell my friends in the traditional education environments, we're missing an opportunity because one of the things that we should be necessarily teaching students how to do is how to be good information and media literate citizens mm -hmm. and how to discern these things. Unfortunately, too many of our teachers are not information and media literate themselves. And so much more work needs to be done from a professional learning standpoint to make teachers aware of that. But the, the idea that technology is out there and this knowledge is out there is changing the way students themselves are thinking about the role of school. So when we think about Today, students have access to knowledge and learning resources on a 24-7 basis. You know, that school day from 8.30 to 2.30, five days a week, <laughs> you know, with summers off and yeah. breaks all the time, gets starts to feel smaller and smaller in terms of the significance of it. And so where our data is showing us that two-thirds of middle school and high school kids are regularly self-directing learning outside of school. But here's the, here's the key part of it. From an education standpoint, our educators still are caught in a place where they think the most important learning or the only valid learning is happening during the school day. Right. And in fact, the students are belying that because they are exploring particularly areas of passion, areas of curiosity, and they are developing skills that they believe they need for the future. So the big emphasis in my book is, hey, 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 educators, pay attention to what students are doing outside of school, self-directing learning, because it will give you some, excuse me, some good insights into how to improve the in-school experience, which may result in students being more engaged in what they're doing in school. Are, are there any school alternatives that currently exist in the landscape that are, are really trying to take advantage of this and, I don't know, grow? Because I, I think of, when I was younger, I did went to Montessori school for a little bit when I was much younger. I went to a, a private school for a couple of years in high school and a public school. So I kind of got the full experience. And I even did a little homeschooling when I was uh, 
like pre maybe like around preschool um all very different experiences completely different learning experiences i actually montessori probably stuck out the most in my memory bank just from how hands-on you are at that age and participating so actively in in what you're doing but are there are there groups are there people that are starting to prove this concept that it's working so there's several different things that I think are really interesting and they're things that I'm paying attention to. So other folks, I think, should be paying attention to it as well. Right? Why are you an expert? <laughs> just an idea. Yeah. Just a couple <laughs> ideas. So one of the things that came out of the pandemic was that for some kids, online learning is better than face-to-face -face learning. I know it's radical. You know, the the politicians and policymakers would say, nope, the best learning happens in school. But in fact, from our data research and from studies that I have done about virtual learning experiences, for some kids, it's a much better experience, particularly because the students have the opportunity to work at their own pace. Mm. They can self-direct the learning. For many students, and I've done focus groups with kids that have been in virtual learning, experiences even prior to the pandemic, they feel that they are able to actually have better relationships with their teachers and with their peers than they were in class. One of the things that came out of our research from the pandemic was that for a lot of kids, the social pressure, the social drama of middle school and high school is overwhelming to them. And in an online environment, a lot of that goes away. So I think there's some really interesting new research coming out about the value of an online learning experience for certain kids. And again, it goes back to this personalization, not one size fits right, all. Right. The other thing is that there's a lot of work that's being done around what's called competency-based learning. So in a non-competency-based learning environment, the the story goes, oh, if you're in fourth grade, you're going to be learning about fractions, for example. Right. Well, what if you learned fractions in third grade? And now you come to fourth grade and you're like, hmm, I already know about fractions. Why am I needing to learn about fractions again? Well, in the traditional school model, that's because, well, the curriculum says fourth grade is about fractions and you need to learn fractions. So in a competency-based model, it's really based upon the idea that as students are learning different things, they can move ahead at a faster pace or they could move at a slower pace, depending upon what they individually need and that we are not stuck in these artificial constructs of saying, well, if it's Tuesday, we're gonna do this. And if it's fourth grade, we're gonna learn this and the students get to move at their own pace and be able to develop whether it's in high school credits or the opportunity to be promoted, but it, it takes away some of these artificial constructs. And I think that that's really interesting because again, it comes back to understanding that not every student learns at the same rate or in the same way. And so there's a lot of really interesting work being done about that. The challenge with that is policymakers are tying funding quite often in schools 
to the fact that students need to be in class a certain number of days per year, a certain number of right. hours in a day, and you have to learn these certain subjects according to the methodology, the standards, the curriculum. Is, is so, it, uh, to touch on that real quick, is that because of the standardization? They're saying, look, if we're going to throw a bunch of cash at this thing, we want to know statistically that this system is ironing out individuals capable of performing an, an SAT, an ACT, this score here. Now we know it's working, we can go to bed at night. Versus you start to utilize a, a competency-based learning system or an influx of online learning and in-person learning, depending on personality types. And now at the other end of it, maybe you and I know that the, these students will be much better off. And then who knows how beneficial that could be in the long term of their career, their family, their relationships, their ability to, you know, run for office or have a conversation with their fellow citizen. We can imagine that those are much greater, but statistically it's very tough to analyze that outcome. It's right. because you need time. You got to go, okay, for this generation of kids that did competency-based learning and blended in-person and virtual, look at how many of them live above a certain median income. Look at how many of them kept their job for certain, whatever the metrics are, but it's not an immediate. You get SAT, ACT scores every single year. You get standardized testing every single year. So is it a problem, a, a, another misaligned incentive where the politicians don't really care, but they just want to justify. And the justification comes most readily from the standardized testing. I think it is about the metrics. And I think that it, back in a day, right? Again, this before and then, before and yeah. now. How do we measure success in school? Okay, so what is the metrics that we use to uh, right, the grading measure? system? Right, okay. So we know that grading is very subjective. You know, I may I may be a tough grader, you may be an easy grader or vice versa, right? And so if we look at a student's GPA in school, what does that mean, you know? Because not all teachers grade the same way. It isn't that standardized. And it's the same thing with standardized tests. We know that standardized tests does not represent what students know. Instead, it represents their ability to take tests and to right. take tests successfully and to learn how to answer questions on tests. And that itself is a science, right? And that's why too many schools will spend a large amount of time in spring doing test preparation so that their school can look good. And people go, oh, these kids are, are are learning so much. Their teachers must be so effective. That school must be so well run. But really, it's just a measure of test taking. It's not a measure, a, an accurate measure. And so we've gotten ourselves into this, again, cycle of saying, well, how do we measure the effectiveness of school? How do we measure the effectiveness of the learning process? How do we measure the effectiveness of a teacher? And whether it is that we look and see, well, what is someone's economic um, well-being after they've been through a certain school? Or were they able to invent the cure for cancer that we've all right. been waiting for? Or are they just happier people than other people? It's just, it starts to get a little fluffy, right? A yeah. little more nebulous in some of those metrics. And so I think that 
the default then is to go to some of these um, statistical measurements because it's easier to do that than to determine some other metrics. But we can't be fooled into thinking that those are good measures because they are not necessarily good measures. And we know also that particularly from an equity standpoint, that those type of measures almost implicitly discriminate against certain populations, certain communities, certain environments. And so to continue to look at those as representations really skews the whole picture that's right. out there. Yeah, it's, it's also not to mention that there's an economic issue too with ability to prepare for a test, because like you said, it's not measuring your, you know, your in a work team critical thinking ability. It's measuring how well you could prepare to take the test that you're taking. And one of the ways to best prepare is to go through test prep and test prep is expensive. So if you did, let's say you wanted to do really well on it, you knew you probably weren't going to do super well and you wanted to do a, some sort of preparation, but you can't afford it. Well, now again, you're taking a student who you never know their potential, but the system thwarts their ability to achieve because their barrier to entry is one that they can't hurdle. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting talking about the, the virtual learning aspect because virtual learning is so universally available. Right. If you can have a Wi-Fi connection and a computer, which thankfully the cost of computers and connections are going down so much that you can actually get even the inner city, right? You can get laptops to every single kid that couldn't have been done 15 years ago. So this virtual learning changes the scope of who can be accessed, right? So you could have a, a premier facilitator in New York teaching an, you know, an onslaught of kids in Ohio and Denver without having to physically be in the same place at the same time, which is special. I wonder, and I, I'd love to hear your opinion or views on this. How, what is the long-term social and psychological effect of that? Because even things like the social pressure of high school, right? Something that we, we both dealt with. I remember it, whether you're, whatever spectrum you're on within the, <laughs> the wild space of high school, it's just, it can be a lot can be a lot of pressure. There, there's teasing, there's need to, you know, get certain clothes and appear a certain way. And there's just all these weird things. But at the same time, there is a value there that's hard to sell that does help you build that range in in-person settings of how to stick up for yourself, how to care about what matters and let go of what doesn't how to treat people well, how to pick someone else up when they're put down, all these different things that are a product of the chaos of high school and of K through 12, that most certainly you will lose when it becomes impersonal. Because even a conversation like this, I would love to have this in person. But to be fair, it doesn't feel that different. It really, the connection feels real, the rapport feels real. We're sitting here and it's almost like we're sitting across from each other. But if I'm thinking of a student who is maybe socially a little bit more uncomfortable, it doesn't thrive in situations with a lot of people, they can find comfort in a situation like this, which is 
great for their learning abilities and for them to express themselves, but it doesn't change the fact that the world still exists out there, that work teams still exist, that a job interview is going to be a job interview, that there, maybe you have a, a virtual interview and then they want to see you in person. They actually want to meet you and, and hear what you're like and, and see how you are. How do you correct for that? Or how do you blend that with the in-person to make it still a real thing while basically taking the best parts of virtual, the best parts of that learning environment and not losing out on some of these really valuable aspects of character development, personal development for the fact that you are in person. So I think that there's, um, there's several different things. And you know what, what happens in education is the pendulum swings very violently one way or the other. <laughs> it's like all in or all out. Right. Um, I think that the, the most effective virtual learning experiences that I have seen for students have in fact been a blended experience. So that's where students have the opportunity to have some in-person experiences and some online experiences and a combination thereof. So that's, that's the first thing. I visited a school a couple years ago, Abe, it was up in Vancouver, Washington. And they had set up a really interesting, it was an elementary school, really interesting blended learning school where the students came in, I believe it was two days a week into the physical classroom with the teachers. And then other three days, they were working at home on um, digitally based learning experiences. And it was a really interesting blend of the two. But the, the real secret sauce in both of this, whether you are in the classroom or you're in a virtual experience, has got to be the efficacy of the teacher to be effective in those environments. Because I have seen some teachers that are more effective teachers in an online environment than they ever were in a physical class. Really? And some teachers that are great in a physical class and just can't make the transition to an right. online environment at all. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. And that's the way it should be. It's a different teaching modality. I think that for some kids, and that, that's what I had mentioned before, some kids, the that experience of being in a physical classroom wasn't as positive as maybe we would want it to be. And mm -hmm. so I've had some students that have said to me, um, well, I'll give you an example, okay? So for a lot of kids, they've said to me uh, when I've asked them, so you have a question of the teacher and you don't want to raise your hand during class. So how do you get that answer from the teacher? Or you want to talk to them about a project you're working on or ask a question about homework. And a lot of kids will say, well, I'll just stop in after school or I'll go as we're passing to the next class. I'll go up to the teacher's desk and I'll ask the question or I'll make an appointment and come back and see the teacher. That works for a lot of kids. For some kids, that does not work. Raising their hand to ask a question in class does not work. It isn't, it isn't something they're comfortable with. It's something that creates a lot of stress and anxiety. And so it's always very interesting to me when I talk to kids that have been in virtual learning experiences, whether that's, that's full-time mm -hmm. or they're taking a couple classes virtual is that many of them will say to me that they feel that they have stronger communications, one-on-one, two-way, back-and-forth communications with their teacher in this type of environment than they ever do when they're in the classroom. 
So if we look at the relationship between student and teacher as being an important factor, it's a component in terms of student engagement, student learning, student success. If students feel that they are more likely to ask a question of a teacher this way or send an email, or as kids are doing now, texting their teachers to ask a question, right? We have to understand that what might work for me may not work for you, may not work for another student. And so we have to be open to this idea that some of our paradigms about what effective communications looks like, what effective learning looks like, what are the pluses of the school environment, what are the pluses of the virtual environment, are not universal for all kids. The folks that run virtual schools, and I've done a lot of interviews with folks that, that run virtual schools, they will start off saying right from the get-go, it has to be a certain type of student to be successful in that environment. It doesn't work for all kids. And we saw that during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But for some kids, it worked really well. And the, the outtake from the remote learning, and these are our statistics, is about 16% of middle school and high school students believe that their best learning experience is when they are in a virtual environment. 16%. Wow. That's not a small number. Well, and uh, it's etching away at the 50, right? So 50 yes. feels fulfilled and, and like they're moving in the right direction. And then 16% feel like they'd be better. You know, now there's, there's less people to solve for on making the educational environment enriching for them. It's, it's interesting thinking about virtual in, a, in an academic setting because so for for years, I, I as a personal trainer, I trained people one on one, face to face, in a facility. Pandemic happened, and alongside all of my clients' children being sent home to go virtual, that was how we began to train people. Also, which needed a pandemic to ever even be entertained. No one would ever want to listen to their trainer and do their own stuff. But what I found now from doing this for the past two and a half years, it's really interesting how it affects an individual's learning style for mm -hmm. movement, mm -hmm. because now they're much more autonomous. Mm -hmm. I may be coaching them through this screen, but it, in essence, they're doing everything on their own. And watching how that changes certain people's behavior is really valuable. And it makes me feel very different about virtual than I think I would have prior to all of this happening and really see the value and how real the learning experience can be. That's right. Despite feeling like it's not the same. That's right. That's right. We have to give up that nostalgia. Yes. Of, I remember what it was like before. And we also have to rethink about what is most effective in this environment. You know, what we saw from the pandemic was too often teachers were uh, at the beginning trying to replicate the classroom and try and do it through this. Some aspects of that worked, some didn't. And right. so it takes a, a re-engineering, a rethinking, a different mindset as to how to approach this. And that's probably the, you know, um, summative statement in terms of the silver linings, maybe from the pandemic, because maybe it opened up all of our eyes to think about doing things differently and to think about what our students really need today from an education standpoint. Yeah, I, I think the pandemic in hindsight, uh, 
now I feel comfortable saying hindsight, but was in essence a blessing in disguise for certain industries. It brought more work-life balance to the corporate setting. It brought more, it brought a change in learning opportunity and learning availability, which was big because now you can have access to things that are not in your immediate environment. So you can, in my case, someone can be on vacation in Hawaii and I can train them as if we're one-on-one. Their consistency never dips. They maintain their routine. That's really valuable. You can have a premier educator who lives somewhere instructing people elsewhere. So your ability to be in front of and learn from the best minds in the world are, has improved. And there's just more reception, right? Your willingness to sit through a virtual blank, anything, is much higher because you've seen the payoff for it. But I, I, it makes me want to ask you, so if you could snap your fingers now, wake up tomorrow, what does the education system look like to you? Two things. First one is that we revere teachers, that we understand the value and the expertise that they bring to the profession, to the community, to their students. The second one is that we understand that the ideas of our students, the experiences, the lived experiences of our students, the insights, what they value, are an important asset in the school system. That our educators are not just waiting for the students to be passively involved in the learning process, but that they are encouraging their students to be active participants in the learning process by asking them about their own lived experiences. And to take that, we have to think differently about, as we started our conversation today, about differently about the role of the teacher in that process. So my answer is both from the teacher side and also from the student side. I guess one, one last question here. Does that, where does that begin on the K through 12? Because, it be, it, go ahead, go ahead. I think it begins in two places. I think that it begins most notably with parents. <laughs> so parents have a superpower in terms of being advocates for their children. They are the purest advocates for their children. And where we have seen policies that have changed, programs that have changed, quite often those changes don't come from within education. They are stimulated by forces and momentum outside of education. So I think that parents advocating for their children, for the school system to change, is where it starts. The second part of it is that there has to be responsive and receptive leadership in the school districts that are willing to accept these ideas, to not just say, oh, those are just parents complaining about something, but to really value that parental voice and the student voice and to look for ways to make sure that the environment that they are producing facilitating for students is responsive to those needs. Well, with more conversations like this, hopefully the landscape will continue to change. People's incentives will continue to change and parents will continue to 
enrich their child's learning experience and promote this kind of thing. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to be here and to sit down and speak on this subject. It was really great, Abe. Thank you so much for inviting me.